What's up, y'all? It's good to be in Vermont. It's a pretty drive up here. Y'all need to know it's colder up here than it is in D.C. right now. Um, I wasn't I wasn't quite ready for that. And the kids were like, Daddy, where in Vermont? Oh, it's cold, Dad. It's cold. I was I had already run into the to the building. They were outside. So um, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You guys are like, oh my gosh, he's so cruel. He's terrible. <laughs> um, but no, it is a it is a privilege and uh, an honor to be able to be with you. I don't take it lightly. Anytime I get to talk to um, to college students or folks who are like serious about thinking about the faith, it always means a lot to me because I actually came to faith in college on the campus of NYU and. I grew up in the church. Uh, my dad was a pastor, and I was in church six days a week. It was that, that everyday kind of church thing. And I had grown jaded. I was a good pretender. I was good at like making it look like I was the real deal for like the little old church ladies that would come pinch my cheek and give me a mint. Um, but... I was crazy. I was wild, and I didn't really want to have anything to do with it. I kind of liked going to church. I liked the music. So when I went off to college in New York, I just went crazy. And I came to faith in college. And I spent some really awesome years growing, but I never had a pastor to actually walk me through the questions I had, the challenges I was facing. It was like me and my friends. It was the blind leading the blind. I was like, what do you think of me? I don't know. What do you think of me? I don't know. Praise the Lord anyhow. You know, it was like, it was that kind of thing. So uh, I just, I really value what it is that is happening on this weekend. And I value my brother, John. And it's, I want to tell you, uh, it is a real gift to have someone caring for you, taking your questions and your doubts and your struggles seriously and helping you to find the unique hope that is in uh, Jesus Christ. So this weekend, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the material that we're going to be working through, um, the theme that we're going to be hitting, because um, it really touches in on the core. If, like if you're asking questions about what is the Christian faith, what is it really all about? If you're going to take the Christian faith seriously, if you are going to identify as a Christian, or you're not sure where you stand with any of that, but you're interested in kind of figuring it out or you feel stuck and you're like, look, I, I, I've been around the Christian faith. I've been around RUF, but I feel like I'm, I'm spinning my wheels. I think this weekend really gets at those kinds of questions and those kinds of struggles and those kinds of doubts. So without further ado, we are going to open up our weekend. I'm going to try not to hold you long because uh, I know you're probably tired, but we're going to start with Mark 4. I want, if you would, turn with me to Mark, the Gospel of Mark chapter 4. If you're new to the Bible, that is in the New Testament. So you get to the middle and you start busting those pages from the right to the left. You're going to hit Matthew, <coughs> then Mark. All right? And if you can't find it, ask, ask one of your... Uh, my daughter's laughing at me right now. Um, that's her back there. I, I bring my own amen corner just in case. You know what I'm saying? Um, <laughs> in my church, I get a little love sometimes, you know. So, you know, I, she's going to talk like that. And I just, I interpret her babbling as amen. So I say, I'm doing all right. You know, that's my daughter told me. So Matthew 4, I'm going to read uh, 
I'm going to read verses 1 through 20, and then I'm going to pray, and we're going to, we're going to start rocking, okay? This is God's Word. And this is Jesus. Again, He, Jesus, began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about Him, so that He got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And He was teaching them many things in parables. And in His teaching, He said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns. And the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. If you would, please pray with me. Lord, I thank you for these friends. I'm grateful that they are giving this weekend, giving this time to listen to me. It is astonishing when I think about the, the real privilege of, of being able to, to speak from your word, to try and encourage folks, to try and provide guidance, to maybe provoke some new thoughts. It's very humbling, and I need your help. And I pray that you would let this time be fruitful for us as we gather here, regardless of where we're at on the spectrum, no matter how much money we have in the bank, no matter what our ethnic background was growing up, no matter how much experience we have in the faith or how little experience we have in the faith, we pray that this would be fruitful for each and every one of us and that we would find ourselves making progress in understanding what it means to live life before you and to live under your grace. So bless this time, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One day, a couple few years ago, 
This little girl right here was an itty bitty like my loud amen corner back here. Just a little bit older than that. And I wanted her to do something for me. And so I gave her a little fatherly bribe. And I said, hey, Tiana, if you go upstairs and get that thing for me, I'll give you a dime when you come back downstairs. She's like, okay, daddy. So she runs upstairs and she comes back down with the item that I wanted. And I reached in my pocket and I realized I didn't have a dime. All I had was a $5 bill. (laughs) Now, I didn't want to go back on my promise. I didn't want to be that kind of father. So I take out the $5 bill and I put it in her hands. I said, there you go. And she looks at the $5 bill and she goes, but daddy, this isn't a dime. I said, girl, do you know how many dimes are in that $5 bill? But she persisted. She was upset. And I was trying to explain to her what had just happened. And she stayed upset with me for like the rest of the day. And the reason why she stayed upset with me is this. Here it is. Because she didn't realize that what I was trying to give her was much more valuable than what she wanted. She didn't realize the value that I'd given her. She didn't realize that what I'd given her relative to what she wanted would far outstrip what she could have hoped for. Now, here's the deal. When it comes to things related to spirituality, when it comes to the way that we're thinking about the Christian faith, when it comes to the way that we deal with God, oftentimes we find ourselves in a very similar situation. We come and we start dealing with God. We start dealing with the Christian faith and we say, you know what? I'd like to have a little bit better mental health. It, it, this seems like a good route. Or, you know what? I, I want to I wanna just have a more orderly life. Or, you know, I really want this job. Or I, I want to make a little more money. I, I, I want some kind of, you know, amenities in life. And God seems like a pretty good route to get to those things. And God often does not give us those things. What he does give us, however, is the gospel. He gives us the gospel. It's far more valuable than anything we could hope for. But so much of our time is spent saying, but God, this isn't a new job. God, this isn't, this isn't better mental health. God, this isn't better life circumstances. And God is saying, do you know how much mental health is in the gospel? Do you know how much life satisfaction is in the gospel? Do you know how much security And hope is in the gospel. Here's the deal. The whole whole theme of this weekend is geared toward trying to deal with the question, what happens when the gospel really takes hold of a person's life? What is it that happens when you are captivated by the gospel, when you are secured by the gospel, when you are stabilized by the gospel, what kind of life comes out of that, that kind of gripping of the gospel? Because I, I am confident that every single one of you is tired of the played out religiosity. Read a chapter a day to keep the devil away and go to church every Sunday. Or, or you know, just the religiosity that it, it doesn't really... Satisfy. It doesn't ring true. And what I'm suggesting to you is this. 
the gospel brings something very different, deeper, richer, truer. And it actually produces the life that we all recognize as beautiful. It produces the life that we all admire but often fail to live into ourselves. We all admire humble people, right? When we see humility, when we see people serving, when we see people fighting for justice, when we see people denying themselves for the benefit of others, we recognize that as something beautiful and admirable. But when it comes time for ourselves to do it, we struggle, don't we? We struggle. We recognize this beauty, but it seems so unattainable at times. And what I'm going to suggest to you is this. Everything that both Republicans and Democrats really long for, liberals and conservatives, black, brown, white, rich and poor, those with PhDs and those who ain't got GEDs, what everyone is deeply longing for is uniquely found in the gospel. Everything they want to see in their lives, every virtue that they're longing to see develop in themselves, every bit of health that they want to see in their relationships and in their own hearts and minds, it's found in the gospel. So we're going to get into this tonight. We're going to get into this theme over the weekend. We're going to, we're going to try and hit the span of things that pertain to the individual, that pertain to communities, that pertain to all kinds of issues that are modern day issues that people are really wanting to see happen, but yet don't necessarily know how to get there. We're going to see how the gospel begins to, to lead us, to empower us. It doesn't just hold out a picture of what is, what is beautiful and desirable, but it actually provides the resources to get there. How do you begin to get the inner resources to move in that direction? And, to, and tonight, we're going to start with what is most critical. The most critical thing we can start with tonight is how it is that you receive the word. How is it that you receive the word? What is the disposition of your heart when you hear the word of the gospel given? The word of the scriptures, the word of the gospel. So tonight we're going to hit this through two points. We're going to see a word of warning and a word of hope. So let's begin with our first point, a word of warning. Now, at the beginning of our passage, we see that Jesus, as usual, is teaching a diverse group of people. And everyone wanted to hear what Jesus was talking about. Jesus gathered people from across the spectrum. They were across political aisles. They were across socioeconomic aisles. And, and Jesus drew all of these people. And as usual, what we see Jesus doing is offering a teaching that was accessible to each and every one of them. He offers a teaching that everyone could get in on. And this is an agrarian society. And so Jesus pulls out this very accessible illustration, a picture of something that these people had seen time and time again. And it was the picture of a farmer sowing their seed. They were sowing their seed to get their fields ready. And back in the day, there would be these pathways. You would, you would scatter your seed, and then you would plow the field. And then you would wait for the harvest. And Jesus uses this as an illustration in order to get people to provoke them. Jesus was a provocateur. He was a spiritual provocateur. He always brought people into tension. He would bring them into tension because it's in the context of tension that we really begin to see what we're working with at the heart level. Who am I? What am I about? 
What do I love? What do I really care about? What is really the direction of my life? That's where Jesus, Jesus was bringing people into the tension in order to expose for them what it is they're working with as in their hearts and then to provide himself as the healer, as the restorer. And so Jesus brings out this accessible image and he turns it into this spiritually invasive story where he describes different types of soil that the seed would fall upon and he uses them as an illustration. And in verse 14, when we scan down to verse 14, Jesus is dealing with his inner circle and he's giving a private explanation. They're like, Jesus, what was that story about? And Jesus is like, Really, y'all? Y'all? All right. Let me break it down for you. And he begins to unpack for them what the parable is all about. Jesus used to tell these stories in order to get people thinking. Because that's what story does. Jesus could have given them a systematic theology. He could have, that's the way Jesus could have presented his truth. But it's compelling that he, he tells it in story. Because story is able to teach you Story is able to grip you and get a hold of you in ways that propositions can't. And Jesus tells them that this is, this is the purpose of, of this story. It's about a sower who sows the word. It's about, so, it's about the word being preached. And specifically, what he's talking about when he talks about the word is the gospel. It's not just any random truth out of the Bible. What Jesus is talking about is the message of the gospel and the way that people respond to the gospel. He's talking about the announcement of his kingdom. If that word gospel is unfamiliar to you, how many of you have heard the word gospel from Christians all the time? And you're like, yeah, yeah, gospel. Yeah, I think I know what that means. It's gospel truth, gospel, gospel. You know what? Gospel, that word, the Greek word euangelion, it, it was not originated by Christians. The original context of this word is it was used in these kinds of contexts. When a king was going out to battle his enemies, his people would be waiting for his return. Now, here's the deal. As they were waiting, they didn't know if their king was going to come back victorious or if the people he went out to do battle with were going to come back and now they were going to be slaves. But when a king went out and they won the battle, there would be messengers that would race back and they would beat the king back. And they would be yelling, Euangelion, Euangelion, it's good news. The king has won. The king has defeated the enemy. We are free. And that is what the gospel is. It's the announcement of Jesus that he has defeated the enemy. What is the enemy? Sin, death, evil, the devil. He has won the victory and he has announced freedom to his people. Everyone who trusts in him, everyone who looks to him in faith and hope in love. That's the message of the gospel. And in that message, we recognize some things about ourselves. And that's what that's part of what is so difficult in the hearing. So the, the, the gospel is the message of a king who's restoring a broken down kingdom and broken down subjects to make all things new. He's restoring it all and people are on his list. 
And not only is he restoring us as individuals, he's restoring us as a, as a family. He's building a new family, which shapes the way that we're supposed to relate to one another across all the lines. It lays upon us obligations for the way that we use our words and the way that we put ourselves out for other people, make sacrifices. This is what the gospel begins to do. But this parable is about our response to that gospel. It's about our response to this message. And it's a call to sober heart inventory because really at the end of the day, what is most critical for you to get is that at the end of it all, what most counts is what your response to the word of the gospel is. This is the ground of your understanding of how, to, how you relate to God. What is your relationship to God? What your relationship to God is, is not based upon sentimentality, how you feel about it, right? Like, I just have warm fuzzies. Like, I don't have any problems with God. Like, we're cool, right? Okay, okay. Like, I, I feel you. I feel you. And I, I, that, that, that can make sense. But what the text is saying, what Jesus is saying is really, it's all about your response to the word of the gospel. You might think that, you know, like, look, I help little old ladies across the street. Scouts honor. Like, I'm a decent person. I don't try to hurt nobody. I don't try to get in no one's way. I treat people with equal respect. You know, I, I'm, I'm a decent person. And Jesus is saying, there ain't a, enough little old ladies in the world for you to walk across the street to get yourself out of this jam. It's about how you respond to the word of the gospel. And so what he's doing, he's reducing it down, right? Like, he, this, is the, this is the ground. If you want to know how you relate to God, ask yourself the question, how do I respond to the word of the gospel? And it's about your present response. It's not like, well, you know, back in 1995, I went to church and I trust, I know I'm all right. It's not about what happened back then. It's the question of what are you, how are you responding right now? It's not about past acts of virtue. It's about the present state of your heart as it relates to trusting in the word of the gospel. Okay. So this is sort of like a, a diagnostic. Jesus is trying to help us. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. Everyone, this is, I think this is funny. When people are like, look, I like Jesus. Like Jesus, like I like Jesus. It's, it's those other Christians that are like all judgmental and like, uh, right? And when I hear people talk like that, I'm like, you haven't read the Gospels, have you? Because there's like the warm and fuzzy version of Jesus. And then there's the Jesus who turned over tables and whoop fools for turning the church into a marketplace. Like Jesus, Jesus is like, Jesus is love, but Jesus will jack your stuff up. Right. Like that, that, that's what the gospel, the gospel accounts show us like Jesus is given a hard word here. And, and, and people are like, you know, like, you can't judge me. Only God can judge me. And every time someone says that to me, I'm like, is, and that's a comfort to you? Like, you, like that? You would rather me judge you. You'd rather God judge you than me judge you? Like, God sees it all. He knows it all. He's not fooled. Like, it's sobering, right? And this is meant to sober us. Like, what is my heart relationship to the word of the gospel? And what Jesus gives is he gives some, some challenges. There are three challenges. As you sit here tonight, there are three 
challenges that you face that affect your hearing of the gospel message, the announcement of the rule and reign of Jesus and what he has done to deal with sin, death, and the devil. And here are the three challenges we see in the text. The devil, the world, and the flesh, the inner battle. And so let's, let's look at these. Verse 15, he begins with the devil. He says, the first group, these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. The devil. Now, here's the deal. For some folks, it's like, the devil, come on, dude, this is silly. What are you talking about? The devil, right? Here's the deal. There was a time where people thought that this dude named Louis Pasteur was a plum fool. They thought he was out his mind because he believed that there were these, these entities that no one could see that were affecting people negatively and they didn't even realize it. They thought this dude was a crackpot. They laughed at him. They clowned him. And now we pasteurize milk. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? Louis Pasteur was saying there are things that are affecting us that we're not aware of. We don't see them. We don't realize it. And people thought he was crazy. Could I suggest to you that it is the same way when it comes to spiritual darkness and forces? There's a professor at Columbia University. His name is Andrew Del Bunco. He's a, he's a secular liberal. And what he says is that his tribe has lost any concept of radical evil. He says that by reducing all of the evil into the, in the world into just like psychological breakdown or social breakdown, it actually trivializes real deep abiding evil. Now, as a secular liberal, he does not go on then to say, so it must be evil spiritual forces. But what he does is he checks his tribe and he says, maybe we shouldn't be so hard on spiritual believers for their belief that there are evil forces at work that we don't see, that we don't appreciate. And what I'm suggesting to you is this. If it's not too crazy to believe that God exists, Couldn't it be conceivable that there is spiritual evil in opposition to God? That's what Jesus is saying. Everyone who likes Jesus as a teacher, everyone, anyone anyone like Jesus as a teacher? Anyone heard anyone talk about love? I I just like the teaching of Jesus. Jesus talks about love. You know, like Jesus also talks about the devil trying to snatch the word, right? And that's what he has in his passage. And here's the deal. Some traditions, they pay too much attention to the devil. It's like, oh, you know, the devil's busy. You know, these diabetes I got. I'm like, but no, that ain't the devil. That's you eating too much cotton candy, right? That ain't the devil, right? But then some people totally sleep on him. They don't think that we're in a spiritual battle. They They are blind to the reality that we have an evil enemy who wants to kill us, who wants to steal from us, who wants to destroy us. And in this text, we see that it's, There's something very similar to Genesis 3 happening. If you are not familiar with the Bible, God creates everything beautiful 
and good. And he says as much. He creates everything and he says, mm, mm, mm. Now that's good. That's good. That's good. Man, I'm good. You know what I, what I made is beautiful. I made those mountains out there y'all be skiing on. Some people be tumbling down. You know, it's like, <laughs> I made these trees turn colors and all this. It's good. It's beautiful. And then the entire world is brought into ruin. And do you know how the entire world is brought into ruin? It's brought into ruin when Adam does one thing. He lets the devil snatch the word from him. Did God really say? Surely, surely God didn't say that. And Adam's like, yeah, he did it. Right? <laughs> I mean, you heard what God said, right? But he's deceived. And look, I want you to think about something. If Adam's, if Adam's struggle with holding to the word in the face of this spiritual conflict brought so much ruin into the world, doesn't it stand to reason that you're letting loose of the word or not receiving the word, the spiritual battle entailed in how you hear the word? If you don't receive the word, it will bring ruin into your world? It's the, it's the, it, your life will be a microcosm of the broader situation of the world. So much ruin introduced into the world. But the point of attack, when it comes to the gospel, the devil brings out the special forces to trouble your understanding of the gospel. Now listen, I want you to understand something. And this is important. It's going to sound a little crazy at first. But I'm right. <laughs> The devil would love for you to believe any number of biblical truths so long as you don't believe the gospel. He would love for you to believe in the morality of the Ten Commandments. That, that it's important that people are made in the image of God. He would love for you to believe. He's fine with you believing that. Because you can believe all those things and not believe in the grace of God in Jesus Christ. You can believe all of those things and not really appreciate what it means for the grace of God to get a hold of you and to shape your relationships and to make you someone who's able to forgive and to make you someone who's able to wither criticism, who's able to weather criticism, sorry, to make you somebody who does not need the approval of other people to be okay. The gospel does all that. But, you know, you can know a lot about the Bible and not know the central, the pinnacle story of the Bible, which is its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. There are lots of people who got their religious T's crossed and their religious I's dotted, but they don't get what it means for Jesus to live the life that you should have lived in your place and to die the death that you should have died as your substitute to be buried in the grave, to go down to the grave, to take your place in the tomb, and to rise up victorious over the grave because not even the grave can tell him what to do. He has all authority. Authority over what? Pick something. And because he has authority over the grave, even the grave, and your life is in his hands, you have no need to fear. You don't need to fear what, what's going to happen when you graduate. You don't need to fear whether you're going to make enough money. You don't need to fear whether you're going to be accepted by your peers. 
You don't need to worry about your body image or any of the number of things that plague us and cause us anxiety and, and fear. No, none of this is a concern when you're united to Jesus, when your faith is in the finished work of Jesus and not in your ability to perform for God. I mean, how do you conceive of your relationship for God? How do you conceive of it? I want you to think about this. Like, what if, what if God is less like, what if your relationship to God was less like employer to employee and more like a father to a child? What if it's more like that? Because you relate to a boss differently. Whatever, my boss is riding me. Yeah, 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 I'm going to get the report done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can smile and say, yeah, yeah. Say, he don't love me. He just loves my output. Like that, that could be your experience of a boss. But when there's a good father, a good mother, that care, when you spill stuff all over the table, or you make a mistake, or you tear stuff up, like, like is a parent really going to be like, I mean, could you imagine me saying to my kids, you know what? You're fired. I'm leaving you in Vermont. I'm done. <laughs> that's, the, that's the last glass of milk you're going to spill on me. I've had enough. You just are pulling your end of the deal here, right? That's inconceivable. You keep using that word. No, you don't know. That's too, that's too old a reference. All right. Yes, yes. Come on. I love you for pulling me out right there. I love it. All right, all right. All right. Were you born in the 90s? Yeah, yeah, y'all are young as I think you are. That's a, yeah. All right, look. I'm almost done, y'all. I'm almost done. Okay. All right, listen. I, this is the timer. You see that? I ran out of time already, but I'm starting it over again. Because I'm free in Jesus? And I was like, all right. The devil. I want you to think about this. Here's your practical application. Think, think C.S. Lewis screw tape letters. Have you read this? Okay, I want you to think about it like this. If you were your worst enemy, what would you do? To get you off track of the gospel. How would you attack you? Knowing your weaknesses. Knowing your proclivities. Would you get you caught up with good things. So that you miss the great things? Would it be distractions? Would it be discouragements? Would it be a relationship? How would you undermine you? How would you get you off track? And then remember this verse. Where Peter says. But we can't be ignorant of his schemes. Think about it. The devil, the world. Jesus moves from the devil to the world. Verses 16 through 17. These are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Jesus moves from the devil to the world. And by world, he means the the the. There are different ways that the, the language of world is used. In one sense, the world is what, everything that God created that he loves and called good. In other uses in the Bible, the world is a God-rejecting system or environment that is antagonistic to the message of the gospel. And notice how this soil is described. Look at it. There's joy at first. There were feelings at first. At first, they were singing... Here I am to worship. Here I... Mm, mm, mm. 
Mm, yeah. Mm. At first, right? There were actions at first. They were showing up to, to the Christian meetings and they were whenever there was a need to serve somebody, they were showing up at first. But then the picture Jesus gives is of a, a an environment hostile to their faith that pressed in on them so much that they withered. And you know what that seems like? It seems like very much like a context we could we could be familiar with. Now listen, we're not like persecuted as it were. Like you don't know what persecution is. Talk to Christians who live in China. Talk to Christians who live in the Middle East. That's for real for real persecution. But there are enough people in our context today that don't really vibe with us. They don't really respect us. They like to condescend to us. They like to talk about us, as, you know, dog us out. It's just a little bit of, of heat. But it's the idea of someone in the, the culture bearing down on you and you starting to wither. And you start to trim the edges off of your faith to try and make it fit in so that the culture will accept you. And you try to like conceal it and hide it because you're fearful of what other people might think about you. And pretty soon, you wither. It's that, that, that pressure, that outside pressure. But look at it. They fall away because they have no root. That's what we're here over this weekend for. Rootedness. The word for fall away is, the Greek word is skandalizonta. It's where we get the word scandal. They're scandalized by their association with Jesus. And Jesus... Jesus is trying to help his people. And what he's essentially saying in this one is it's not about how you start. It's about how you finish. There was a runner from Kenya who was competing in one of these long marathon races. And partway through the race, he got injured. And he limped along and limped along. And it took him like six hours to finish the marathon. And at the end, like he was the last one by far. They were waiting on him. The lights was about to go out. And when they interviewed him after, they said, why did you keep going? He said, because my country didn't send me thousands of miles to begin the race. They sent me thousands of miles to finish the race. And God did not give you his gospel and show his love toward you and provide his grace and patience toward you so you can make a start. He shows his love and his grace and he pours out his love and he announces his gospel to you so that you will finish. So that you will finish. And let me say this. Driving up here, I was paying a lot of attention to these beautiful trees, right? Um, and here's the interesting thing. You know how trees get stronger? Any, any of y'all know? <laughs> It's through the blowing of the wind, pushing on them, and it's the back and forth getting pushed on that allows the roots to sink more deeply. And this isn't one of those made-up preacher illustrations. I look this junk up, all right? <laughs> that's how trees become strong, because as they're blown back and forth, they sink deeper roots. What if the purpose of God bringing the challenges, the cultural pressures on us in America as Christians, is because we need deeper roots. 
What if it's because we need a faith that is not overly Americanized and captive to the, the nativism of our country? What if we need a faith that's more global and more historic than Americans are prone to have? What if we need to get over the, the overly patriotic faith that commingles Americanism with Christianity? What if that's one of the reasons why he's, allow, he's allowing this to blow on us? It, to, to strengthen us, to deepen our roots, because we need to let go of this syncretism where we take a little bit of Americana and a little bit of Christianity and we mix them together and say, right on. You know what I'm saying? We need, we need growth there. So God sends it. We need to remember what Jesus said. Jesus said, if the world hates you, chill. It hated me first. That's the Russ Whitfield International version, okay? <laughs> Here's the deal. At some level, you need to let Jesus offend you if you're gonna if you're gonna let Jesus defend you. Before he defends you, he offends you, okay? And that's the way the gospel works. The bad news about us and the good news about him. You're worse than you ever imagined. You're more loved than you could ever dream. That's the good news. We've got to let him offend us. We, we have to receive the offense of Christ if we're going to receive the defense of Christ. But then the flesh. This is the one I want you to think about when you're off in these pretty mountains. And, you lit, and you're thinking about your life. And you're thinking about this stuff. You're college students. I remember what it was like, I think, to be a college student. And, and there are unique challenges to this season of life. But guess what? Each season of life brings its own unique challenges and there is no mystical season of life that's the easy part. There is no easy part. There's, there's just the, the part. <laughs> I'm not cynical. I'm not trying to give you bad news. I'm telling you, you need to have the right expectations about your life. And here's the deal. Listen to verse 18. It moves... From the devil to the world to the flesh. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Put that on repeat. Cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches, desire for other things. They enter and choke the world. And they, present, they prevent fruitfulness. And I want you to see something. In this parable, it is very clear that there's only one soil that the farmer wants. The sower wants one soil. And that's the one that bears fruit. And here's the deal. Not all growth is fruit-bearing growth. Not all growth is fruit-bearing growth. You can grow vocationally and ascend the ranks in your industry and it not be fruit-bearing growth. You can go to a therapist and gain greater command over your anxiety and your depression and not, not be fruit-bearing growth. None of those things are bad in themselves, but what Jesus is looking for is fruit-bearing growth. And what is that fruit? That brings us to our second point, a word of hope. And this is, a, for real, for real, going to be brief. Here are, the, here are the responses. Stop giving me away. She's like, yeah, I know what brief means, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> so Jesus, if you wanted to give these different categories, Jesus talks about the hard heart, the shallow heart, the cluttered heart, the cluttered heart. Let's say that one more time. The hard heart, 
the shallow heart, the cluttered heart. And now he's going to talk about the humble heart. Verse 20, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30 fold and 60 fold and 100 fold. And this is the primary issue for Jesus. This is a question that Jesus cares to impress on his people. This is the subject that he had them reflecting on. What is it? What does it mean to receive the word? What is the marker of those who receive the word of the gospel? According to Jesus, the marker's fruit. And how, where do we get that picture from? What is the fruit? Don't be reductionistic. It's not just thinking accurate theology. It's not just serving the poor. It's not just fighting against injustice and against racism and sexism and every other ism that is fracturing humanity. It's not reduced to any one of those things, but it, it, it does begin with a heart dynamic. And how do we get to an understanding of what the fruit is? Look at the rest of the New Testament. It's not sterile checking of boxes on the religious to-do list. What's the fruit? Look at Galatians 5, 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Romans 6, 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become servants of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. That's life transformation that is born from understanding the gospel and living into it. Ephesians 5, 9. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. It begins on the inside and issues in an outside kind of dynamic. Philippians 1, 9 through 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is just a start. Fruit is loving what God loves and hating what God hates. Fruit is having a heart that is more shaped by the good news of God's love for you and what he has accomplished for you and his presence with you and the future he's laid up for you and allowing that to shape the way that you relate to the world, the way you're oriented to the world. No longer as an anxious presence, no longer as a selfish gun, right? Like you become a different kind of person. It's that kind of fruit that Jesus is looking for. The gospel does that. And the rest of this weekend... We're going to see different facets of what happens as the gospel begins to, to crowd your heart and crowd out your fears and your selfishness and, and all of the other ugly things that are within. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these friends. I'm grateful for their kind attention. I pray that this weekend would be, be a surprising marker for them that they would be able to look back on this weekend and say, God met me in a, a unique way, a particular way, a special way on this weekend. And that their lives would be, would be transformed. That they would feel your presence and empowerment. And that they would be uh, contributors to the advancement of the kingdom up here. That they would beautify this this place and serve it because of how they've been served, that they would commit their way to love and grace because they know your love and grace. 
I pray that you would bless their group dynamic. I pray that this time next year, there would be many new faces that are here because this group grew in their, in their sense of how loved they are in Jesus. And that, that motivated them to then freely love the people around them. I also pray that you would continue to grant them grace to reflect the demographics of the campus. That, that this RUF would be more diverse than the actual campus itself. Not for diversity's sake, but because the gospel is about bringing people from different worlds together and uniting them through the power of grace in Jesus Christ. So Lord, bless these friends. Let this weekend be restful for them and um, give them good sleep tonight. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.